Christian just warfare teaching and uh, Ukraine part two, and uh, we'll eventually get to Ukraine, but we're going to, you know, we're going to focus on what the Bible has to say about war. What is a just war? What is it? What is an unjust war? And then we'll make some application uh, today. <clears throat> but I'm going to read from uh, Jeremiah 48, verse 10, and you'll see why in a bit when I get to the end of the sermon. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. And you'll understand why I'm reading that in a moment, because I'll, I'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, you say, well, why do a series, uh, just a very small series, on uh, just warfare, the Christian view of just warfare? Well, we have a war in Ukraine. We have various conservatives, Tucker Carlson, a lot of Trump people are opposed to it and say we shouldn't help them. It's too far away and so forth. Well, we're going to talk about why we should be helping them from a biblical perspective. And remember, the Bible is the infallible word of God. It speaks to all areas of life, either directly or by implication. And uh, it does have a lot of teaching about war and about helping other people and so forth and self-defense. And these things are very appropriate for us to study. And we've, <coughs> we've come to our position where we're going to talk about um, uh, the historic reform position. And we're going to look at the larger catechism briefly. The reform position on the lawful use of physical violence is best expressed in the Westminster Larger Catechism. On the Sixth Commandment, which is, you shall not murder. And let me read, uh, this is the answer to question 136. The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in the case of public justice okay, he doesn't bear the sword in vain he has to put murderers to death, etc. <clears throat> lawful war there's that expression lawful war or necessary defense now, the proof text for public justice is Numbers 3531. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So according to God's law, according to biblical law, we're talking, these are moral laws. These are not, uh, the penalties are justice. They're expressions of justice. God's justice. So, you know, we can't say this is just for the Old Testament. <clears throat> a person committed of murder could not escape the death penalty by paying a large sum of money to the victim's family. So the Bible is against uh, the payment of a ransom for murder. Now, if you have a, let's say you have a bull, and he gores somebody, and it's, it's not your fault, you didn't know the bull had a tendency to do that, uh, you can pay a large sum of money and you're not put to death. But if you know that he has a tendency to do that, and you don't restrain him, and he does it again, then you have to be put to death. <clears throat> the verb phrase, he shall surely be put to death, in Hebrew is emphatic to indicate that the death penalty is the only option that God accepts as just. So this idea of which we do in the United States, which is uh, very common today, it's very rare to get the death penalty day. 
even for people that commit first degree murder and it's obvious they're guilty and they're convicted with tons of evidence, most of them get life without parole. And in liberal states, there's no justice at all. I watched a thing in, uh, it was in Washington state, which is a, a more liberal state. Somebody did a thrill kill. He killed somebody. He shot somebody in the head four times for fun. It was totally for fun. They had tons of evidence. He was convicted. He got 29 years and two months, and he'll be eligible for parole at about 15 years for first-degree murder. And then I watched another one where a man committed uh, two murders uh, involving rape and murder. This is Washington State. And he got 28 years, and he'll be eligible for parole in, I don't know, about 14 years or so. That's not justice. And we know even, even people who are not Christians who have common sense, realize that's not justice. <clears throat> With murder, first and second degree murder, as well as the um, second case of negligent homicide, uh, which we noted earlier, for example, the bull, you know, you don't, you don't have a proper fence and you have a pit bull and it gets out and it kills somebody. Uh, that's negligent homicide. Yahweh requires life for life. Biblical justice requires that the murderer's life be taken by the civil magistrate. That is justice. Now the pacifist position and that of the modern secular humanist who deny the death penalty for certain heinous offenses such as murder is a denial of true justice and a choosing of evil over good. There's no neutrality. If you're against the death penalty for things that God says the death penalty applies to, then you're against justice. You're choosing evil over good. We must understand that the secular humanist has abandoned any concept of unchanging ethical absolutes that are based on God's nature and character. And, of course, God's authority. There are two types of moral laws. There are what the Puritans called, or early Presbyterians called, moral natural laws. These are ones based on God's nature and character. Okay, we, t we have to tell the truth because God's nature is truth itself, and so forth. Uh, and then there's ones based on God's authority. They're universal because they apply to all people, not just the Jews. And they extend to the New Covenant era. Example would be incest. Incest is a moral uh, positive law, uh, but murder would be a moral natural law. Consequently, they are influenced by the latest pagan intellectual fads. That's the humanist. Since the 20th century, Marxist socialist concepts of society have prevailed in left-wing progressive circles. And... Uh, Leftists defended Stalin when he starved, I don't know, 7 to 10 million Ukrainians to death. Uh, what leftists have done in the 20th century is absolutely shocking, and they're doing it today. Consequently, it has become popular to associate crime with poverty, not immorality and rebellion against God, and we are told that crime, rioting, and violence are at bottom the fault of capitalism or white privilege or institutional racism. Okay, don't be taken in by that. This stuff is just satanic garbage. It's all lies. 
In the process of such thinking, crime and rioting is excused or justified as the fault of society in general, and thus is considered the acceptable price of social progress. And you remember George Floyd, the wicked criminal, drug addict, who died basically of a drug overdose and an enlarged heart, not from the cops, but that the truth doesn't matter in these type of things. Now, what he did was inexcusable. The cops should have not put him in a chokehold that long or whatever, put the knee on the neck. That was unjustified and wrong. But George Floyd is not a saint. To make him into a saint, a wicked criminal and drug addict, is insane. <clears throat> but the rioting that occurred during the epidemic, uh, which we were told was justified, you can't get together in a football game or you can't get together in church, but you can have a riot uh, that was justified. And that's because that, to them, that's social progress. It fits in with their Marxist view of life. This mindset is behind the decriminalization of many crimes. For example, in many cases, making felonies misdemeanors. This is going on in big democratic cities. Uh, in addition, simply refusing to prosecute many crimes. And frequently giving absurdly lenient sentences. And this is all occurring in democratically controlled cities. There was a guy who just, he murdered three people in California who just got seven years. This just happened a week or two ago. He got seven years. Now, he did these things when I think he was 17 years old, so technically he was not an adult. But the vast majority of states would have tried him as an adult, and he would have got at least life in prison. He got seven years. This is how these people think. This is insanity. The progressive district attorneys are simply acting upon their own Marxist socialist presuppositions. When civil leaders in courts operate in accordance with a sec their secular humanistic presuppositions, they become hostile to law and order because they hate God and his moral law, which is the source of law and order. There's no neutrality. All the stuff that's going on, this insanity regarding sexuality where they're presenting... Uh, men dressed up as women to little children and so forth. This, this, all this crazy stuff. Homosexual marriage and all the sodomite rights. All this stuff's insanity. It's totally wicked. But it's part of their worldview. The other assault against true biblical justice comes from secular psychology and psychiatry, which seeks to accuse criminal offenses by rejecting the concept of sin against God and personal responsibility for, you know the answer, for mental illness and the idea that bad circumstances in life justifies bad behavior. <clears throat> How many defendants who've committed horrible crimes? Well, he had a bad upbringing. His parents were mean. They didn't love him. Or they were poor, and he didn't have, he couldn't afford a teddy bear. A bear. He couldn't, you know, he didn't have a bicycle. So, him cutting off the head of this woman and raping her, oh, that's not a big deal. Let's, let's let, let him slide. That's their thinking. The Bible rejects the concept of the insanity plea for all men are responsible for their actions. Secular humanists have rejected biblical absolutes for positivism and subjectivity. Positivistic law means the idea that men are simply making up the law. So it's the 1930s or 40s, somebody asked uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, Rush Dooney discusses this in one of his books, I think it's the Institutes, uh, what is the source of law? What is law in the United States? What is the foundation of law in the United States? And he said, the, the majority of whoever is on the Supreme Court. That's positivistic law. Men make it up as they go along. <clears throat> 
one generation, it's wrong. Uh, it's okay to have sla chattel slavery. The next generation, it's okay to have chattel slavery. One generation says it's um, wrong to have sodomite marriage. The next generation says it's okay to have sodomite marriage. It's all arbitrary. It's subjectivity. It's positivistic law. <clears throat> In the process, there's been a... Uh, there has been a shift away from personal responsibility and objective justice towards psychological therapy instead of absolute moral requirements as well as class guilt. We see this especially today. It's all about, it's not what did so-and-so do, it's class guilt. That is, group's responsibility over personal guilt for criminal acts and personal accountability. Okay, so why is it that leftists don't make a big deal out of the many, many people who are murdered every single week in Chicago? Blacks murdering blacks. Or blacks murdering blacks in South Central Los Angeles. Or blacks murdering blacks in Western North Philadelphia. Why don't they make a big issue out of that? Because they don't see that as an issue. Because it doesn't fit their paradigm of white racism and class warfare. The result has not only been a great rise in crime, which has led thousands of Democratic liberals to flee such areas for more conservative states, and hopefully it's happening to Texas and Florida, and hopefully they don't start voting their satanic trash into our country, into our state, but also a contempt for victims. When progressives argue against the death penalty for murder, but at the same time argue vehemently for abortion, which is the murder of unborn babies up to the time of birth. Okay, you, can't put a, you can't put a guy who raped a woman and cut her throat to death, but a baby who's committed no crime at all, hasn't even lived yet, you can kill that baby. Um, they reveal that secular humanism has led our society down the path of a new, brutal, pagan savagery. And uh, pray for America, folks, because if, if there's not repentance, if this stuff doesn't turn around, uh, God will certainly have to judge us because, you know, in the realm of sexuality, we're becoming Sodom and Gomorrah. And with the realm of violence, the acceptable amount of violence, we're becoming more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah every day. <clears throat> Men can kill, rape, kidnap, and violate God's law in the most egregious, wicked, and rebellious manner without a just recompense of reward. Now, I admit in some states, if you murder somebody and you're caught and you're convicted, you're not getting out of prison, like Texas. But in other states, you will. And then you can kill again. And I, I, one of the things I like to watch, true crime shows, and a lot of murders are committed by people who were in prison for very, very serious crimes, and then they were let out. <clears throat> that guy in, who was choked to death in the New York subway the Michael Jackson impersonator who was trying to assault people and was protected by, I think, an ex-Marine or something, uh, had 50 prior arrests. His brother-in-law or cousin or somebody who was defending him, uncle or something, has 70 arrests. And the Bible doesn't allow that. The Bible, if you're, if you're a, a habitual criminal, if that's your lifestyle, you're eventually, you have to be put to death. <clears throat> Now, such a view not only denies justice to the victim's families and expresses an evil contempt of God's moral law, 
but also expresses a contempt for the past and possible future victims of the murderer. The mercy of the wicked toward murderers who commit vicious crimes expresses cruelty and a lack of love and mercy to law-abiding citizens. And you remember the passage, the, the mercy of the wicked is cruel, Proverbs 12.10. It's cruel. Because the mercy is extended to people who should not get mercy. You know, it's one thing if uh, somebody's a jerk and they say something bad and you make up and you forgive them. That's one thing. But you can't forgive somebody who cuts a woman's throat or commits rape or, or kidnapping. Those are crimes. They have to be dealt with properly. Now, you can witness to them if they become a Christian. Yeah, they can go to heaven, but they still have to be put to death. I remember uh, Pat Robertson just died. He was a he was a false prophet and a, and a heretic, but because he said many things, he said God told him many things that didn't happen. But anyway, I remember uh, Pat Robertson and a number of uh, Christian leaders. There was a woman who was going to be executed in Texas. I don't know if you remember this it happened quite a long time ago. And what she had done is uh, her and her I think it was her boyfriend or something had gone in and had murdered. I don't know if they murdered two people, but I know they murdered a woman, and they basically. It was either a pickaxe or a or a uh, hatchet, and and she hacked the woman to death, and she got the death penalty, and she deserved the death penalty. But all these Christian leaders were coming out. Oh, well, just give her life in prison because she's a Christian now. No, if she dies, she'll go to heaven if she's really a Christian. But you have to execute the murderer. That you have to give them justice. <clears throat> Yahweh delegates to the civil magistrate the duty of inflicting the death penalty after a lawful trial, of course, biblically defined. There has to be real evidence for offenses that God finds especially wicked for the good of society. A private person sins if he draws the sword and he acts as the judge, jury, and executioner. And I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm talking about somebody who goes out. Remember those movies? <laughs> what was that guy? I forgot the guy's name. Charles Bronson, where he was just going around killing people. That's a lot of fun, and we like to see bad people killed, but that wasn't biblical. <clears throat> a public person, the civil authority sins if he puts the sword in its sheath and doesn't exercise the sword when he's supposed to. A magistrate ought not to let the sword of justice rust in the scabbard. That's his job. People have the idea of the federal government, uh, it's supposed to be there so we can have um, health benefits and welfare. It's not the civil government's job. That's the family and the church's job. The civil government's job is to kill bad people and make sure society's safe. It's, their job is to use the sword. Their job is not to hand out checks. Now, there are two proof texts cited by the larger catechism for the prosecution of, of a just war. The first is Deuteronomy 20, which speaks about the need to trust God, verses 1 to 4, 19 to 20, and the God-given laws of warfare, verses 5 to 14, which we already looked at last week. Although these laws were given for the conquest of the promised land, which is, we noted, is a unique one-time event in salvation history, never to be repeated. A Christian nation does not have the right to conquer uh, their next-door neighbor nation if it's a pagan nation. Um, now, if 
let's say you have a Christian nation next to a Muslim nation, and the Muslim uh, kills some missionaries or kills some Christians, uh, then you might have a justifiable war there. But you can't just attack a nation and con conquer it for the sake of the gospel. That's The sword that we use is the sword of the Spirit. <clears throat> Although these laws were given for the conquest of the promised land and are unique, nevertheless, regulations, the regulations are based on God's character and authority and should be heeded today uh, for just warfare. The age requirement, not attacking, not uh, cutting down the fruit trees, and all these things that are designed so you're killing their warriors, you're killing their, the warriors, you're not going after the population who may, may be even against the war. The second passage, which I read earlier, is, is, is a little unusual. Jeremiah 48.10. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed is he who keeps his, poured back, his sword back from blood. And this is interesting. God, through Jeremiah, is making a moral judgment comment about the Babylonian armies who would come and crush Moab. Although they were Yahweh's agent to carry out his just judgments against Moab for worshiping the false god Chemosh, trusting him as their savior, as well as hating and persecuting God's true people, nevertheless, the Chaldeans will be judged because their motives in going to war were immoral. Now we see this in the Old Testament where God will use a pagan nation to punish a wicked nation. And then God will turn right around and judge the pagan nation uh, for having unbiblical motives and going to war. And that's the case here. They were doing it deceitfully. They didn't do it for biblical reasons. <clears throat> Yet as Yahweh's agent of destruction, they will be cursed if they do not faithfully and completely uh, complete God's objective. That is, shed blood. Yahweh expresses that bloodshed and warfare is warranted under certain circumstances. Now this is an unusual choice for justified warfare in that God, by his special providence, set the, these things in motion. Nevertheless, the fact that the Lord wages a bloody war through the instrument of his choosing indicates that wars under certain conditions are moral good and necessary. Adolf Hitler, attacking his neighbors, killing innocent civilians, destroying property, stealing land, stealing property, murdering Jews, murdering gypsies, murdering uh, soldiers caught, who, you know, if they give up, you don't have a right to kill them. That's a just war. Now, joining with the Soviet Union was immoral. That was wrong. If Yahweh, who is goodness itself, ethical perfection, and truth itself, has a cause for war, then obviously not all wars are immoral. God hired the Chaldeans to destroy the exceptionally idolatrous, wicked, and perverted Moabites. And uh, if you have Calvin's commentary, read Calvin on this passage. He's excellent. I read the modern commentaries, and Calvin is better. He just goes into more detail, that's all. The lawful good use of warfare is indicated by the larger catechism statement, the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are 
the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. And that's answer to question 136. Now, it's clear that unlawful violence and killing or murder of a neighbor is evil and wrong. Every culture and society in the world has laws against murder. First degree murder, second degree murder. They have laws against it. That's obvious. But according to the analogy of scripture and simple logic, there is a positive side to the sixth commandment. One must do whatever he can to preserve the life of a neighbor. And, you know, it talks about things like, you know, don't eat unhealthily. You shouldn't smoke. You, you shouldn't do things that destroy your own body and your life. Uh, and it talks about suicide is wrong and all these things. You, you should do what you can to preserve the life of your neighbor. In fact, to refuse to help a person in need when one has the ability to do so... It's not only cowardly and selfish, but unloving and sinful as well. And here's what Calvin says. This is Sermon's commentary on the uh, four last books of Moses. Quote, And not to say more on this point, it will plainly appear from the summary of the second table that God not only forbids us to be murderers, but also prescribes that everyone should study faithfully to defend the life of his neighbor. And practically to declare that it is dear to him for that, in that summary, no mere ne negative phrase is used, but the words expressly set forth that our neighbors are to be loved. It is unquestionable, then, that of those whom God there commands to be loved, he here commands the lives to, to our care, their lives to our care. There are, consequently, two parts in the commandment. First, that we should not vex or oppose or be at enmity with any, and secondly, that we should not only live at peace with men without exciting quarrels, but also should aid, as far as we can, the miserable who are unjustly oppressed and should endeavor to resist the wicked, lest they should injure men as they list, as they please. What a great quote. And that is why if you study the larger catechism, which is absolutely fantastic, I think it's the best catechism produced by any Reformed denomination, any Reformed communion. It'll have the negative and the positive of each commandment. And keep in mind, they're summaries. And of course, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the, the, the two from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. Actually, it's Deuteronomy. Um, you got Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6, I believe it is. <clears throat> or Deuteronomy 4, I'm, I'm, my mind neglects here, but there's a moral side and, and there's a negative side, don't do this, and a positive side, do this. If you're driving down the street and uh, you see a couple of guys robbing and beating up an old woman, a widow, and you have the ability, you have the means to defend her and save her, you have an obligation to do so. If you see a young child drowning in a pond and you're a good swimmer and you have the ability to save that child, you have a moral obligation to do so. And if you don't, that's sinful, that's evil to allow somebody to die like that. And I, I bring this up, I mean, you see these people um, where somebody's being attacked publicly and people just watch or walk by and they, they get their cell phones out and they're photographing it and they don't help the person being attacked. How evil can you be? They're violating the Sixth Commandment. They're not actively uh, trying to kill somebody, but they're not saving a life. That's violating the Sixth Commandment. 
And we'll see in a moment how that applies to war. You get a Christian people being attacked by an aggressor, and you have the ability to help them. And of course, the United States, uh, with the Budapest Mem Mem Memorandum, 1994, uh, Great Britain and the United States promised to help Ukraine if those borders are violated. And we did. We made a covenant. We made a promise. We have to keep that promise. And it's not an unethical promise. It's a, defending yourself against an unlawful person is a, is a just war. Ninety-eight percent of the of people in Ukraine are professing Christians. If a person can save a drowning child or a woman being raped or a man being mugged and beaten or a classroom full of children being murdered and refuses to do so, he is guilty of violating the positive side of his commandment. The attitude which says, it's not my problem, it's not my responsibility, is unscriptural and that person will have to answer to Christ on the day of judgment. You know, if you see a little old lady and she's got a flat tire and you've got the time, if you don't have to be somewhere that minute, stop and help her change the tire. Christians ought to be known for being helping people. And you say, well, maybe she's not a Christian. Maybe she's uh, a wicked feminist. It doesn't matter. The Good Samaritan helped a Jew who'd been beaten up and left for dead. And the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. We'll talk about that passage a little later, but... Who's the one who loved his neighbor? It wasn't the priest who walked by. It wasn't the Levite who walked by. It was the Samaritan. And that's a very in-your-face story because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Jews were quite racist against the Samaritans because they were half-breeds and they had a corrupt religion. Here's what Rush Dooney says. There's a fundamental principle appears here. One which functioned in Israel in later Christian law orders and which became part of the American legal tradition. Namely, the police power of every citizen. You've heard of a citizen's arrest, right? The law asks two things of every man, obedience and enforcement. To obey a law means, in effect, to enforce it in one's own life and in one's community. God's law is not a private matter. It is not for us to obey personally simply because we like it, meanwhile leaving other men to follow whatever law they choose. The law is valid for us because it is valid for all. To obey it means to accept a universal order as binding on us and upon all men. Obedience, therefore, requires that we seek a total enforcement of the law. It's a great statement. We see the positive side of this commandment in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, which I just mentioned, Luke 10, 30-37, where a man, he's robbed, he's beaten up so badly, uh, he's left for dead. And you get the buzzards floating, we're just waiting for him to die. But along comes this <laughs> Samaritan. <clears throat> he wasn't helped by a priest, he wasn't helped by a Levite, he was helped by a Samaritan. The men who were supposed to be very religious and pious, violated the command to love a neighbor by, in this case, seeking to preserve his life. And that's the point here. Jesus is pointing out, hey, these men who are supposed to be your examples are supposed to be very pious. They completely violated the law here. But the Samaritan did love his neighbor. The larger catechism uh, also appeals to the scene of judgment 
where our Lord condemns those who refuse to help hungry, thirsty, and naked brothers in Christ. Matthew 25, 42-43. These professors of true religion lack the fruits of saving faith. James 2, 17-20. You say you're a Christian? But when my children needed help, you didn't help them? No, you're not a Christian. You don't have true faith. Because you don't have the works, the fruits of faith. This ethical imperative is why Abraham and his trade servants took up arms against Chedor Lomar and his alliance in order to rescue Lot, Abraham's brother's son. This involved taking up swords, arms. It involved killing evil men who were engaged in unjust conquest. It involved bloody combat against murderers and thieves for the rescue and protection of the innocent and their property. You can read about it in Genesis 14, 10-16. Now, how do we know that God approved of what Abraham did? Because certainly an Anabaptist wouldn't approve of it. And a liberal Democrat wouldn't approve of it. Well, Abraham, we are told in Scripture, was a just and righteous man who thanked Yahweh for this victory in just warfare. The high priest of Salem, Melchizedek, see Psalm 110.4, Hebrews 6.20-7.21, who is a type of Christ, celebrated this victory with bread and wine. Now, that's not some kind of symbolism of the Lord's Supper in the future. That's Abraham had been in battle and was very hungry and very thirsty, so he served him bread and wine. He blessed the God of Abraham, as well as the patriarch, and thanked God. Genesis 14.20, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. <clears throat> so God approves of what Abraham did. Explicitly approves of it. The fact that the inspired author of Hebrews gives us approbation to this Genesis narrative and bases his analysis of Christ's priesthood, in part, on this account, means that one cannot dismiss it as the patriarch simply following ancient custom. No, he's doing God's will. He was a righteous man. God blessed Abraham in his use of the sword to rescue the innocent victims of an unjust war. You couldn't be any more clear. Now, that's that passage is not used by the larger catechism. I brought that in. But it certainly applies. You, you can't have all the stuff about Melchizedek blessing Abraham and blessing God for the victory if it was unjust, <laughs> if it was sinful. Now, one can see from a study of the relevant biblical text that not only is pacifism unbiblical and wrong, but it is also immoral and evil. For God's moral law requires that we must try to protect innocent life against thieves, rapists, murderers, and warmongers. <clears throat> Human beings were created by God. Therefore, the rules for human existence, right or wrong, criminology, when and how to apply civil penalties, etc., comes from him. Every aspect of God's moral law is a religious duty for every single person on earth. I'll never forget after 9-11, uh, it was uh, Billy Graham's son 
was speaking at that ecumenical service with George W. Bush, with the Muslims and the animists and the Buddhists and the Hindus and everybody. And he got up there. I think it was him. It might have been someone else. But it was a very popular Christian, you know, celebrity. And he said, uh, and he started talking about scripture and he says, well, if you're a Christian, this applies to you. No, 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 no. If you're a human being, God's law applies to you. It applies to you whether you believe it or not. And uh, you can spit on it. You can reject it. You can promote sodomite marriage. You can promote abortion on demand. But on the day of judgment, you're going to be held account by Jesus Christ. This means that everyone has an obligation not only to avoid unlawful violence and murder, but also to protect innocent life. Murderers must be arrested and tried, and the death penalty must be applied by the state. And I didn't put it in here. I should have. But there's a passage in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus, around 17 or 19, or I don't know, where, I forget, maybe it's not Leviticus, but anyway, it's a passage where if you don't put the murderer to death, you'll bring guilt on your land. You're familiar with that passage. You have to put him to death, or you bring guilt on your land. Now, in our nation, we let murderers live, and we kill babies. And uh, so if you're thinking that maybe judgment of God will come upon our nation, yeah, you better start praying for revival <laughs> soon, immediately. The persecution, the prosecution of unjustified warfare is murder on a grand scale. Thousands or even millions of unlawful deaths. The Soviet Union, Hitler, killed 27 to 28 million. Mostly, well, about half, about 12, million, 12, and a half, 12 and a half million soldiers and the rest were civilians. So more than, more than half were civilians. Then yet you got 6 million Jews. Uh, 3 million were shot. 3 million were gassed or so forth. Uh, you got the murdering of the gypsies and so forth. Those guilty of murder possess true guilt and are under the liability of punishment of death. If the civil representatives of the community do not put murderers to death, which is what God, Yahweh requires, they place that community under God's sanctions for allowing the guilty to live. And I forgot to write the passage down. <clears throat> this progressive elimination of the death penalty for murder in the West, well, it's almost worldwide. I mean, Mexico, all of Europe, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, none of them have the death penalty anymore. In the United States, the death penalty is rarely enforced. It's rarely, it's rarely used. It's very rare. In California, they stopped putting murderers to death, even though they still technically have the death penalty. It reveals secular humanist hatred of God and his law. It also reveals a contempt for man who is made in God's image. For victims are refused justice, and they deserve justice. A woman who is raped and murdered, that man deserves to die. He does not deserve to be let out of prison to rape and murder again. Atheists, Anabaptists, and antinomians may ridicule the death penalty as harsh and barbaric, but the alternative is wicked and cruel. They want to replace God's justice with the human autonomy of sinful men. Now we're going to take a little break. I had too much for one sermon, so we're going to divide it. We're going to take a little break, we're going to come back, and we're going to look at a basic Christian view of war, 
and then we're going to deal with the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Tucker Carlson, what he says about Ukraine is just downright stupid and evil. Oh, it's too far away. Oh, they're corrupt. Let them die. That's selfishness. But we'll, we'll see why in a minute. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your teaching. Give us wisdom. We pray, Lord, for you to hold Russia and their leadership accountable for the murdering of pregnant women, babies, innocent men, destroying property, flooding the nation by destroying dams, bombing innocent civilians. They deserve your wrath and indignation, Lord. Have mercy on Ukraine. Destroy Russia. Strengthen the hand of Ukrainians. In Jesus' name, amen.